0: In the following sermon, which was given on Sunday morning, the 5th of July, 1959, in the Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the text to be found in Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 15 to 19. Look down from heaven, and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory, where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me, are they restrained? Doubtless, thou art our Father. Though Abram be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart, From thy fear, return for thy servants' sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Now, in our study of this uh, great uh, prayer of the prophet Isaiah, which is recorded in this chapter, and in the following chapter, chapter 64, we come to a particularly interesting point. You remember that in chapter 62 we have seen the prophet confronting the desolate and forsaken condition of the nation, of the church at that time, we see him uh, recognizing the situation and determining and deciding to do two things. One was to set watchmen upon the walls and the other was to pray. He exhorts his fellow countrymen not to give God any rest and not to give themselves any rest whatsoever until... Jerusalem shall be made again a praise in the earth. And then, having given the exhortation, he proceeds in this 63rd chapter to the prayer. You remember that before he did so, God gave him a vision in order to encourage him. And God still does that with his people who truly are seeking his face. He gives us encouragements. And then in the light of this encouragement, the prophet begins to pray. And we were considering last Sunday morning the first part of his prayer, which begins in verse seven. I will make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord. There we watched him. And his method is most important. His method, you remember, was this, having started with a reminder of the character of God. He then reviews the history of his own people. It's a very wise thing to do that, a very comforting thing. Our danger today is to think perhaps that the church has never been like this before, and to feel therefore that Christianity is in a hopeless state and condition, and that we are witnessing the end of the Christian church. Now the antidote to that is to go back into history. And the moment you do so, you will find that the church has often been in this state before, even as Israel had often been in that kind of condition before. So he goes back over it all. And what he found, you remember, was this, that whenever Israel was in trouble, it was always due to her own folly, her own rebellion. It was always due to the fact that they had turned against God, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, He was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Now, that's an invariable rule. It isn't the people who are outside who cause the trouble. It is we ourselves. Well, he saw that this was always the case in the past. And he saw further that when the children of Israel realized that and repented and turned back to God and began crying out and saying, Where is he? Where is he? that God had pity and had mercy upon them, looked down upon them again, and began to bless them once more. Very well. Fortified with all that knowledge, the prophet now proceeds with his prayer. And what does he do? Well, he realizes obviously that the only thing to do is to repeat what had always been done by the children of Israel at such times. And what we have this morning to consider is the beginning of this prayer of the prophet and of the nation, as realizing that they are where they are because of their own folly and rebellion, they turn back to God in penitence and in contrition. Now, the prayer begins here, really, at this 15th verse, and it goes on right to the end of chapter 64. Uh, this morning, however, we can only consider the first section Which is to be found here in these verses at the end of chapter 63. Now, as we come to look at this prayer and realize that this is the only hope for us at this present hour, because our position, our predicament is almost precisely like that of the children of Israel when they'd been carried away captive to Babylon. And as they say, the Church has often been in subsequent periods. As we realize all that, we must realize that this is our only hope. We must pray this kind of prayer. Very well. What are, first of all, the general characteristics of the prayer? Before we come to look at the particular petitions it is essential that we should be clear about the mode or the method or what I'm describing as the general characteristics of the prayer. And they're quite obvious on the surface of the prayer. Here's the first. The urgency, the importunity. There's nothing half-hearted about this prayer. Nothing slack or vague, no, the man's whole soul is moved to its very depths. And he's urgent, because he realizes the position. Here are God's people, with their city sacked and ruined. They've desecrated the sanctuary. He gives his description, and then he pleads with God. The matter's urgent. Well, I mustn't stay with this this morning. I've had occasion to refer to it before, and I shall have occasion to do so again, next, God willing, next Sunday. But this note, I say, must never be forgotten by us. And, of course, we can only remember it as we do realize something of the urgent condition in which we find ourselves. To me, it is astonishing that, as God's people, we can be so much at ease in Zion when we see the state of the Church and the state of the world round and about us. I'm not only thinking of armaments and bonds, I'm thinking of industrial unrest and the selfishness that is so obvious in every walk of life and in every rank of society. Lawlessness, self-seeking. There is only one hope for this kind of thing, and that is that men and women... Begin to realize again who and what they are and their subservience to God. We all need to be humbled before God, ere a final disaster overtakes us. And it is only, I say, as we realize the position that we shall begin to pray with the urgency and the importunity that characterizes the prayer of the prophet. And then notice his strong emotion. You notice the strong emotion in the very way in which the man prays. There is a kind of form to his prayer, and yet there's a sense in which it isn't, uh, hasn't a form, it's formless. There's an alternation here between confession and pleading, and that's always a sign of strong emotion. A man who's experiencing a strong emotion is not over punctilious about form and about diction and arrangement. No, no. He's so moved that he doesn't take time to think orderly in a sense, but he just utters the controlling feeling at the moment. And that's what we have in this prayer. He doesn't first of all gather his petitions and pleas together and then give his reasons and so on. No, no. The man's heart is so profoundly moved, he's in the grip of a strong emotion and therefore he prays from the depth of his heart and you know my friends whenever the church is in a state of revival you get the same thing whenever the spirit of god comes down upon the church forms are forgotten liturgies are put into abeyance and the Spirit of God moves in men's hearts and out of the heart come their expressions of worship, their pleas and their petitions. Exactly as you've got here and in every other great prayer in the Bible. And then the next element I must just notice is this one. The element of pleading. The element of reasoning with God. Indeed, I can use a stronger term the very element of wrestling with God. Have you noticed it here? The way in which he plies his arguments. He says, O Lord, thou, O Lord, art our Father, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and so on. And not only that, you notice here an element of boldness There is almost an element of daring here. And we've seen in considering the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33 exactly the same thing. You'll always find this in every great prayer of intercession... The prayer, he pleads with God, he reasons with God. Listen to this man doing it, he says, Why hast thou made us to err? The people of thy holiness have possessed the land for but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine, thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. He's arguing, he's reasoning, he's pleading with God, he's wrestling with God. This is a very wonderful element of all true intercession. There is a paradoxical element about this. The prophet is very conscious of his unworthiness and the unworthiness of the people. And yet, you see, in spite of that, he is aware of something that makes him feel that he's got a right to plead with God and reason and argue and, as it were, wrestle with God and to say, I will not let thee go, O oh, Lord, you can't refuse us. Now that is, it seems to me, the real key to the understanding of this particular prayer. And therefore I would put it in the form of a principle. You see, there is an apparent problem for us here. Here is a man uh, pleading for a nation that had rebelled and had sinned against God and which God had punished. He is deeply aware of the sinfulness and the shame of it all. And yet, I say, he prays with this holy boldness. What is the secret? Well, the secret is this. He is aware of a certain relationship to God, which, in spite of all the the unworthiness, makes him feel that he has a right to go into the presence of God and reason and argue and plead with passion. He wrestles with God. Now then, the principle involved is this, you see, that in the last analysis, our only hope is our understanding of the doctrine, the truth of our relationship to God. Great prayer is always the outcome of great understanding. Deep prayer is always based upon a grasp of the truth. You can get a very superficial and a glib kind of praying that may at first sight sound very wonderful, but you wait until trial comes. And he doesn't know where it is. The glib phrases seem rather empty. They die upon the lips. When a man is in the furnace of affliction, oh, it is then, I say, that he falls back upon certain fundamental truths of which he is absolutely sure and certain. The key to great praying is a deep knowledge and grasp of the doctrines of grace. Now, I'm not simply asserting that the Bible's full of it. And if you read the story of the church throughout the running centuries, you'll find it exemplified time and time again. The men who can stand in the furnace of affliction are the men who have got a rock beneath their feet. And the rock is the Holy Scripture and its blessed doctrine. Now then, let us see all this working out in practice. There are the great characteristics of this man's prayer. Well now, what are his actual petitions? This morning we can only look at the first great petition. And the first great petition, of course, is in these pregnant words. Look down, behold. Here it is in verse 15. Look down from heaven, and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Look down. Next Sunday, we shall go on, God willing, to the second petition. And the second petition is this, Oh, that thou wouldest come down. But he hasn't got to that yet. He's asking God now to look down. Now, here, of course, is the first thing which we, you and I have to realize. Here is the first great need. Israel is defeated. The great bulk of the people are carried away and they're captives and are slaves in Babylon. The temple lies in ruins. The great city of David, the great city of God, lies a heap of rubble. What's the matter? How has this ever come to pass? What's gone wrong? What's the supreme need? I don't keep you this morning in translating all that into modern language, but that is the picture of the modern church. Let's be in no mistake about that. The church of God is down. She's in a sense of ruins. And there's the enemy triumphant and laughing at us. What's the matter? What is the supreme need? Well, there's no doubt about it, according to this man. And it's the same in the Psalms that we read at the beginning. It's the same everywhere in these great prayers in the Bible. What is the need? Well, the need is the presence of God, the face of God. God seems to have turned his back upon us. He is not looking upon us. He is turning away. I don't hesitate to use these terms. The term Father is used in my text this morning. And God is our Father. Yes, and God treats us, his children, as we treat our children. The little child has been doing something that he shouldn't do. And then he comes to you, and what you do, you don't look at him. You turn away from him, and he holds on to you. And he he just wants you to look at him. The thing he can't bear is that you're not looking at him. And he pulls at you, and he pleads with you just to look upon him. He wants to see your face. And that's exactly what this this prophet is doing here in his prayer. Look down, he says, look at us. Oh God, why do you turn your face away? Why do you avert your face? Why is your back turned toward us? Why are you like a traveler, a stranger, going away from us? Look down. It is a cry and a plea for the face of God. And the smile of God. My dear friends, the test of your spirituality and mine is whether we know anything about offering that petition or not. You know, just to go down on your knees and to recite the Lord's Prayer and to ask blessing upon yourself and your family and the things you're going to do that day, that's not praying. Oh, well, let me not be too hard. All right, I'll grant that it is a sort of prayer, but it's a very Small, it's a very primitive kind of praying. It's the prayer of a tyro. You know, what really tests us is this, that we long to see the smile of God, to know that God is looking upon us, and that we are living and moving under his eye, that his eye is upon us. God of mercy, God of grace, Show the brightness of thy face. That was what was troubling the prophet, you see. God had averted his face. Oh, Lord, he says, look down upon us. Well, now I say that this is still the position. And this is the supreme need of the church today. Are we sufficiently sensitive, I wonder, to the presence of God Do we know the difference between God smiling upon us and God not smiling upon us? It's the test of a preacher. There is all the difference in the world to be preaching merely from human understanding and energy. And preaching in the conscious smile of God. I can't describe the difference to you. There's an eternity of difference between the two things. There is nothing more terrible that I know of than to be in this pulpit alone, myself, without the conscious smile of God. Look down. Do you know his smile, and do you therefore know what it is to be bereft of it? And like the little child, to plead with him to turn round and just to look at you again? God seems to be turning away from the church. He seems to have lost his interest in us. Now that's the beginning of the prayer. But let's go on and follow him and see how exactly and in practice he pleads with God to look down again and to smile upon them once more. Here are the rules. This is invariable. There's no other way. The first is He starts by worshipping God and adoring God. Listen to it. Look down, he says. Well, where from? From heaven. And behold, from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. We've got to stop there. You see, we don't start with ourselves. We never must start with ourselves. We must always start with God. And when you start with God, there are certain things you've got to realize about God. If you don't, you might as well not get on your knees. You might as well not begin to pray. Who are we going to pray to? Who are we addressing? Well, we are addressing one who lives in heaven. Look down from heaven. You know, we are so self-important and so self-concerned. And we rush into the presence of God. Our need my personal need and the need of the church. And we go as if, stop, my friend, I don't care what your predicament is. I don't care if hell is yawning beneath you. I don't care if all your enemies are gathered against you. I don't care what's true of you. If you're going to pray to God, realize who God is and where he is. Look down from him. Well, you see, we've got it all. But we don't realize it. We are so familiar with the Lord's Prayer that we don't pray it. Our Father said, Our Lord, which art in heaven. God is in heaven and we are upon the earth. Our Father which art in heaven. Yes, it's a good thing to remember that if it were only this. That as you and I are surrounded by perplexities and are wondering what's going to happen and are so conscious of the strength of communism or every other ism that we begin to quake and fear. Remember that he's above it all and looks down upon it all. He's not in it. He's outside the flux of it all. And that'll put you right at once. Look down from heaven and behold from where will the habitation of thy holiness. Quite right, says our Lord. This is how you are to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, hallowed, holy. Same thing, you see. This is invariable. My friends, do we remember who God is when we pray? Do we tell him? Do we use this terminology? Do we think it out? Do we remember the holiness of God? How essential it is. Look at our Lord himself when he was here in this world. He who, though he was on earth, was still in heaven. The only begotten beloved son of the Father. Look at him praying, and this is what he says. Holy Father. We don't pray truly unless we realize these things. We are like spoiled children and we want forgiveness, we want blessings. And we rush to God, but wait a minute, you're approaching a holy father. And then as you remember that, you'll remember your own sin, your own unworthiness. You'll forget your rights, you'll forget your demands, and you'll just prostrate yourself before him. From the habitation of thy holiness. And of thy glory. What is the glory of God? Well, no man can define it. The glory of God is his uh, essential and ultimate attribute. It means his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. I'm never tired of saying this, I must say it again. You know, the real trouble with all of us is that we don't know God. We think we do, but we don't. The glory of God. Have you ever thought of it? You see, the psalmist knew this much about it. He said, I would sooner be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness or of the ungodly. He'd sooner be a man in the vestibule, giving out the hymns, doing the most menial tasks, perhaps, than to be in the very parlor, in the innermost citadel, in the very center of the life of the ungodly. Why? Well, he tells you why. Grace and glory. To see the glory of God in the tabernacle. Just to peep through the door now and again and to see something of the Shekinah glory of God from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. In other words, it is still, you see, a prayer for a glimpse of the glory of God, of the face of God, to see God. Look down from heaven and behold, from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. He starts with that, then he goes on to this. He reminds God and himself of the relationship that subsists between them. You see, you start with God as he is in himself. And then you go on to the relationship between us and God. Well, here are his terms. He puts it in the form of a question. He says, where is thy zeal toward me? Where is thy zeal toward me? What's he talking about? Well, what he means is this. He knows the past history of the children of Israel and of God's dealings with them. He knows what God has said about them, and he knows what God did for them. And what he finds is this, that God in the past had been zealous on the behalf of his people. There, you see, were the children of Israel long ago in the captivity of Egypt. And the taskmasters were flaying their backs with whips, making them produce more bricks with less straw. They were in a terrible state and condition. And God arose in his zeal for them. And he called Moses and he said, Go back, I want you to lead those people out. But Moses said, What can I do with Pharaoh? Don't worry, sir, I'll be with you. The zeal of God, read the story. How God intervened and acted and did things and brought them out. The zeal of God for his people. Where is that zeal now, says the prophet? That's how you used to be? But wh- where is thy zeal? We wouldn't be defeated if thou wert still zealous for us and for our cause. Where is this energy that thou once did display on our behalf? You said we were the apple of your eye and that you'd allow nothing to harm us. Where is thy zeal? That's the prayer. He is reminding God of his ancient relationship to the nation and to the people and his zeal on their behalf. And then he adds another term. Not only where is thy zeal, but where is thy strength toward me? And this is very wonderful. God's almighty strength and ability and power. I rather like the way in which the psalmist puts it. The prophet puts it here. You see, he doesn't doubt the strength. He knows it's there. He is confronted by the power of Babylon and the Chaldeans who have sacked the city of Jerusalem, carried away the people captive. And you might come to the conclusion, well, of course this has happened to us because God hadn't the strength to prevent it and wasn't strong enough to conquer them. No, no, says the prophet, it isn't that. God has still got the same strength He is the father of lights with whom is no changeableness, neither shadow of turning. Oh yes, he's got the strength, but the question is, where is it? It's there, but he's not exercising it toward us. And if we're not clear about this, we must be feeling rather hopeless this morning. You say, why is the church as she is? Why is God's cause down? Why is the enemy rampant and powerful and triumphing? Is it because God can't stop them? No, no. The strength is there. Let's ask him, where is it? Why isn't he showing it with respect to us? Where is thy strength? And then this most extraordinary term. Where is the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies? That's, of course, a typical Biblical and especially Old Testament expression, the sounding of the bowels. The ancients believed that the bowels were the seat of the emotions. Why? Well, because when a man's under a strong emotion, he's aware of the movement of his bowels. He may even have a pain, a colic, an agony. Strong emotion gives movements of the bowels. And that's what this man says. Where is the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward us? You remember Jeremiah crying out in his pain, My bowels, my bowels. He was in agony because of the state of his people. And that is where he felt it. That's where he related it. And the prophet, you see, venturing, daring, applies it all to God. He says, Why aren't you being moved toward us as of old? Why is not your emotion toward us as it once was? The movement, the disturbance, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies with respect to Where is this? Why are we not knowing it and experiencing it? Well, that is the second thing that he says. And then he comes on to the third, which is the actual plea that he offers. And you notice that it is a threefold plea. The first I've already been expounding, in a sense, in the words, where is He is well aware that these are still there, that God hasn't changed because God cannot change. He knows that God is as he always has been, but he's concerned about the manifestation of all this. In other words, he's acknowledging and confessing his sin and that of the nation. How can a holy and a glorious God ever look upon us? How can he feel compassion and pity and mercy with respect to us? We've forfeited it all. How can such a holy God ever have another interest in us? Oh, Lord, he says, there's nothing to do. I plead, I just ask for mercy and for compassion. Look down, he says. Behold. And then in verse 17, Return for thy servant's sake. Oh God, he says, come back to us. Why art thou like a stranger? Why art thou like a journeyman? Why not come back to us? Return, oh holy dove, return. Sweet messenger of rest, as Cowper puts it. That's his second plea. Having acknowledged that they have no right to ask it, he pleads urges God to look again and to exercise his compassions and his tender mercy and his strength. And then thirdly, the most extraordinary petition of all. Listen to this, verse 17. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Have you pondered that? Have you considered it? Do you realize exactly what this man is saying? Let's be clear about this. His petition is, Why hast thou made us to err from thy ways? And why hast thou hardened our heart from thy fear? What is this? Well, we mustn't evade this difficulty. We must face it with open eyes. Some people have tried to avoid the problem by saying that it just means that God permits us to be hardened that it's God as it were just allowing us to err from his ways that isn't what the prophet said the prophet says that God had actually caused this caused them to err caused their hearts to be hardened he's already said it in chapter 6 in verses 9 and 10 he says to the prophet go and tell this people hear ye indeed but understand not And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. God commands the prophet to do that. And, of course, when you come to the New Testament, you will find that our Lord himself quotes these very words in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 12 and in verses 37 to 41. Listen to this. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Esaias the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart and be converted. And I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. And you will find exactly the same thing taught. In the last chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, what's it mean? It means what the Apostle Paul says in Romans nine eighteen. Therefore hath he mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. What has all this to do with us, says someone? Well, here is the answer. It is a terrible and a dangerous thing for God's people to be disobedient. For sometimes God punishes our disobedience by not only turning his face from us and leaving us to ourselves, he even seems to drive us into sin and into error and to harden our hearts. He sends affliction. And afflictions harden us. That is one of God's ways of punishing us. And what the prophet is praying is this. Oh God, stop dealing with us judicially. We deserve it. We deserve it. We've sinned against you. We've rebelled against you. We said we could go on without you. And you've let us go on without you. And you've even hardened our hearts. You've made us obdurate. God have mercy, he seems to say. Stop dealing with us judicially. Be careful how you treat God, my friend. You may say to yourself, I can sin against God. And then, of course, I can repent and go back and find God whenever I want. You try it. You try it. And you will sometimes find that not only can you not find God, but that you don't even want to. You'll be aware of a terrible hardness, callousness, a callosity in your heart. And you can do nothing about it. And then you suddenly realize that it's God punishing you to reveal your sinfulness and your vileness to you. And there's only one thing to do. And you turn back to him and say, oh God, don't go on dealing with me judicially, though I deserve it. Soften my heart. Melt me. I can't do it myself. You cast yourself utterly upon his mercy and upon his compassion. That is the third great plea. That God should cease to cause them to err and to harden their hearts judicially and that brings me to the last matter i must refer to this morning we've seen his method his worship his adoration we've listened to his threefold plea and now he brings his arguments the grounds on which he ventures to make his plea and oh how interesting they are he doesn't plead anything in themselves No merit in themselves at all. Of course not. There is none. We deserve nothing from God. If you think you do, well, my dear friend, you don't know him. You haven't seen that glory. You know nothing about that holiness. And you haven't seen the plague of your own heart. No, no, there's nothing here but just to say, Oh, Lord. Is there an O in your praying? That's another very good test of prayer. That this O comes in. Oh, Lord. Or are you such good people and doing such excellent work as evangelicals, busy with this organization and all you do is to ask God to bless you and to keep on... Or do you know what it is to say, Oh, Lord. That's how the prophet prayed. That's how the men of God have always prayed. This O. Somebody once said, you know, that a sign, the best sign of a coming revival is that the word O begins to enter into the prayers of the people. Oh, Lord. Well, very well, what are the grounds? Well, here they are. He pleads the covenant relationship. Doubtless, he says, thou art our Father, thou art our Father. This is most significant. You know, the trouble with these Jews always was that they were always talking about Abram. Abram is our father, they said. These Gentiles, who are they? Abraham is our father. They rested upon the fact that they were the children of Abram. John the Baptist knew that very well because, you remember, when he preached to them, he says, begin not to say in yourselves, we be Abraham's seed. For I say unto you that God is able to raise out these stones, children, unto Abraham... And you and I must not go into the presence of God merely in the name of tradition, merely in the name of the fathers, merely in the name of those who have gone before us. I don't care who they are, whether they were the Methodist fathers or the Puritans or the Reformers. No, no, we don't plead their name. Abraham, Jacob, not at all. Thou art our father. The Reformers can't save us. The Puritans can't save us. The Methodist fathers can't save us. And there is a grave danger that we fall back upon the fathers. No, no, it's God. Thou art our father. And nobody else. And how right he is. It is God who has made the covenant. It is God who owns us and we are his people. God is the founder of Israel through Abram, through Jacob, yes, but they are not the fathers, it's God. And listen to another contrast which he draws. Though Abram be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledges not, Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer, Thy name is from everlasting Abraham, of course, a great man, thank God. Jacob, marvelous. Yes, yes, but Abraham is dead and Jacob is dead. They can't rise up and save us. God, thy name is from everlasting. It is too everlasting. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and he is the living God. We don't fall back on the fathers, however august and great we go back to God. Not only that, I believe he was saying something like this. Though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledges not, by which I think he meant this, he's saying, Do you know, I believe if Abraham and Jacob could come back and see us, they wouldn't recognize us, they wouldn't acknowledge us. They'd say, Those people don't belong to me. They're not my offspring. I renounce them. Abram was the friend of God and a holy man. So was Jacob. And they wouldn't recognize us. They disavow us. They disinherit us. Thank God, says the prophet, that thou art our father. Though thou art a holy God in glory, you've got more love and compassion than Abram or Jacob ever had, the two of them together and multiplied by infinity. Thou art our father. They would probably repudiate us. With thee there is mercy that thou mayest be feared. Thank God we are in the hands of God after all and not of men. Though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art still our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. And then he goes on to say, You see, we are thine inheritance, he says. This is the truth. The tribes of thine inheritance. That's who we are. We are thy people. They were not thy people. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. This is a tremendous thing. The Lord's portion is his people. Though we may be full of sin and unworthiness as we are, we are still the people of his holiness. Let's go to him, remembering that, reminding him of it. Bad as we are, we are still his. We are not in the world, and the world doesn't belong to him. Plead that with God. Ask him to return. We are thine, the people of thy holiness. The Lord's portion is his people. And then his final argument. That God has no relationship to these other people. Here they are, you see. The Chaldeans in the time of the prophet, the Egyptians at an earlier period, Anybody looking on might have thought that the Egyptians were the people of God, that the Chaldeans were the people of God. They seemed to be blessed and were affluent and full of prosperity, and these others, slaves, serfs. Oh, God, says the prophet, can you go on doing this? Can you go on behaving in such a way as to give the impression that they are thy people? But they're not thy people. The people of thy holiness have possessed the land but a little while. We're taken out of it and the Chaldeans are possessing it. But it isn't theirs. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. And that must be your prayer and mine. The godless world today stands out in its brightness and its glory and its fatness. As the 73rd Psalm puts it, their eyes stand out in fatness. There are no bands in their death. They seem to be having everything. And God's people, a little handful, suffering and troubles and problems. And the world laughs and says, where is their God? And you and I should turn that into a prayer. And with humility and yet with confidence and boldness, we should go to God and say, Oh, Lord, can you let this go on? They're not your people. These people whom you're allowing to have so much prosperity, they're blasphemers, they're thine adversaries, as well as ours. Oh, God, can you go on doing that? Though we are weak and feeble, though we are down, though we are rebellious, though we are sinful, though we have nothing to recommend us. Even still, we are thy people. God, have mercy upon us. Thou art our Father. Look upon us. Behold us. Smile upon us. Acknowledge us. Turn back to us. Oh, don't keep turning away. Come back. Return. O oh, holy dove, return. Sweet messenger of rest. We are thine still, they are not. Return to us, arise for our deliverance. Have mercy upon us. God grant us to pray as the prophet prayed. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.